Chapter Nineteen of *The Room in the Dragon Volant*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. *The Room in the Dragon Volant* by J. Sheridan Le Fanu. Chapter Nineteen, The Key. I stood now upon the steps, watching and listening. In a minute or two, I heard the crackle of withered sticks trod upon, and looking in the direction, I saw a figure approaching among the trees, wrapped in a mantle. I advanced eagerly. It was the Countess. She did not speak, but gave me her hand, and I led her to the scene of our last interview. She repressed the ardour of my impassioned greeting with a gentle but peremptory firmness. She removed her hood, shook back her beautiful hair, and gazing on me with sad and glowing eyes, sighed deeply. Some awful thought seemed to weigh upon her. "'Richard, I must speak plainly. The crisis of my life is come. I am sure you would defend me. I think you pity me. Perhaps you even love me." At these words I became eloquent, as young madmen in my plight do. She silenced me, however, with the same melancholy firmness. "'Listen, dear friend, and then say whether you can aid me. How madly I am trusting you! And yet my heart tells me how wisely. To meet you here as I do, what insanity it seems! How poorly you must think of me! But when you know all, you will judge me fairly. Without your aid I cannot accomplish my purpose. That purpose unaccomplished, I must die. I am chained to a man whom I despise, whom I abhor. I have resolved to fly. I have jewels, principally diamonds, for which I am offered thirty thousand pounds of your English money. They are my separate property by my marriage settlement. I will take them with me. You are a judge, no doubt, of jewels. I was counting mine when the hour came, and brought this in my hand to show you. Look!" "'It is magnificent!' I exclaimed, as a collar of diamonds twinkled and flashed in the moonlight, suspended from her pretty fingers. I thought, even at that tragic moment, that she prolonged the show, with a feminine delight in these brilliant toys. "'Yes,' she said, "'I shall part with them all. I will turn them into money and break forever the unnatural and wicked bonds that tied me, in the name of a sacrament, to a tyrant. A man young, handsome, generous, brave as you can hardly be rich. Richard, you say you love me. You shall share all this with me. We will fly together to Switzerland. We will evade pursuit. In powerful friends will intervene and arrange a separation and shall at length be happy and reward my hero." You may suppose the style, florid and vehement, in which poured forth my gratitude, vowed the devotion of my life, and placed myself absolutely at her disposal. "'Tomorrow night,' she said, "'my husband will attend the remains of his cousin, Monsieur de Saint-Armand, to Père Lachaise. The hearse, he says, will leave this at half-past nine. You must be here, where we stand, at nine o'clock." I promised punctual obedience. "'I will not meet you here, but you see a red light in the window of the tower at that angle of the chateau.' I assented. "'I placed it there, that to-morrow night, when it comes, you may recognize it. So soon as that rose-coloured light appears at that window, it will be a signal to you that the funeral has left the chateau, and that you may approach safely. Come, then, to that window. I will open it and admit you. 
five minutes after a carriage, with horses, shall stand ready in the porte cochere I will place my diamonds in your hands, and so soon as we enter the carriage our flight commences. We shall have at least five hours' start, and with energy, stratagem, and resolve, I fear nothing. Are you ready to undertake all this for my sake?" Again I vowed myself her slave. "'My only difficulty,' she said, "'is how we shall quickly enough convert my diamonds into money. I dare not remove them while my husband is in the house.' Here was the opportunity I wished for. I now told her that I had in my banker's hands no less a sum than thirty thousand pounds, with which, in the shape of gold and notes, I should come furnished, and thus the risk and loss of disposing of her diamonds in too much haste would be avoided. "'Good heaven!' she exclaimed, with a kind of disappointment. "'You were rich, then, and I have lost the felicity of making my generous friend more happy. Be it so, since so it must be. Let us contribute each an equal shares to our common fund. Bring you your money, I my jewels. There is a happiness to me even in mingling my resources with yours." On this there followed a romantic colloquy, all poetry and passion, such as I should in vain endeavour to reproduce. Then came a very special instruction. I have come provided, too, with a key, the use of which I must explain. It was a double key, a long slender stem with a key at each end, one about the size which opens an ordinary room door, the other as small almost as the key of a dressing-case. You cannot employ too much caution to-morrow night. An interruption would murder all my hopes. I have learned that you occupy the haunted room in the Dragon Volant. It is the very room I would have wished you in. I will tell you why. There is a story of a man, who, having shut himself up in that room one night, disappeared before morning. The truth is, he wanted, I believe, to escape from creditors, and the host of the Dragon Volant at that time, being a rogue, aided him in absconding. My husband investigated the matter, and discovered how his escape was made. It was by means of this key. Here is a memorandum and a plan describing how they are to be applied. I have taken them from the Count's escritoire. And now once more I must leave to your ingenuity how to mystify the people at the Dragon Volant. Be sure you try the keys first, to see that the locks turn freely. I will have my jewels ready. You, whatever we divide, had better bring your money, because it may be many months before you can revisit Paris, or disclose our place of residence to any one. And our passports, arrange all that, in what names and whither you please. And now, dear Richard—she leaned her arm fondly on my shoulder, and looked with ineffable passion in my eyes, with her other hand clasped in mine—my very life is in your hands. I have staked all on your fidelity." As she spoke the last word, she on a sudden grew deadly pale and gasped, "'Good God! Who is here?' At the same moment she receded through the door in the marble screen, close to which she stood, and behind which was a small roofless chamber, as small as the shrine, the window of which was darkened by a clustering mass of ivy so dense that hardly a gleam of light came through the leaves. I stood upon the threshold which she had just crossed, looking in the direction in which she had thrown that one terrified glance. No wonder she was frightened. Quite close upon us, not twenty yards away and approaching at a quick step, very distinctly lighted by the moon, Colonel Gaillard and his companion were coming. The shadow of the cornice and a piece of wall were upon me. 
Unconscious of this, I was expecting the moment when, with one of his frantic yells, he should spring forward to assail me. I made a step backward, drew one of my pistols from my pocket, and cocked it. It was obvious he had not seen me. I stood with my finger on the trigger, determined to shoot him dead if he should attempt to enter the place where the Countess was. It would, no doubt, have been a murder, but in my mind I had no question or qualm about it. When once we engage in secret and guilty practices, we are nearer other and greater crimes than we at all suspect." "'That's the statue,' said the Colonel, in his brief discordant tones. "'That's the figure.' "'Alluded to in the stanzas?' inquired his companion. "'The very thing. We shall see more next time. Forward, monsieur, let us march.' And much to my relief, the gallant Colonel turned on his heel and marched through the trees, with his back toward the chateau, striding over the grass, as I quickly saw, to the park wall which they crossed not far from the gables of the Dragon Volant. I found the Countess trembling in no affected but a very real terror. She would not hear of my accompanying her toward the chateau, but I told her that I would prevent the return of the mad Colonel, and upon that point at least that she need fear nothing. She quickly recovered, again bade me a fond and lingering good-night, and left me gazing after her with the key in my hand, and such a phantasmagoria floating in my brain as amounted very nearly to madness. There was I, ready to brave all dangers, all right and reason, plunge into murder itself on the first summons, and entangle myself in consequences inextricable and horrible—what cared I—for a woman of whom I knew nothing, but that she was beautiful and reckless. I have often thanked Heaven for its mercy in conducting me through the labyrinths in which I had all but lost myself. End of chapter 19